I chose to speak on Sunday night because, as, as you know, I like saying, I want to speak a little bit, preach to the choir a little bit uh, in a figurative sense. As you know, we don't have a choir, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, why, why we don't. But there's, sometimes there's things we need to talk about, and many of us have heard it over and over and over again. When I was a child, topics like this, it seemed like they popped up every few months and it was, don't do this, don't do this, why we don't do that, and spoke of the evils a lot of, of a lot of the practices that other denominations or denominations had and how they conducted their worship. I like to approach it a different way, and I, it's one of the topics I like to cover about every five or six years. It's been six years since I spoke um, basically on this topic. But why do we worship the way that we do? Uh, I don't remember it. I remember the telling of the event, but somewhere when I was around two years old, I went on a, a trip with my parents and great-grandmother and great-grandparents, and all my mother said she could remember about the trip is that everywhere we went, every turn, time we turned the corner, I said, why, 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 why? And maybe that carried on with me through the rest of my life, but I really am one that likes to know why. And... Not everybody is like that, but I think it's good when we have a reason for why we do what we do. And that's the approach I would like to take. If you've ever been anywhere else to, to church, and most of us have been at some point in time, how we worship and what it looks like is way different from most other places in lots of different ways. You can walk in, and even though sometimes it may have the same name on the sign, it just feels different even. And there's a reason for that. Uh, it's not an accident. It's not like somebody told the story one time, well, uh, let me see if I can donate some more money to you. Y'all must be really poor because you can't hire a preacher. You know, it's by choice and by design and not an accident that we conduct services the way that we do, that we're organized it the way we are. And as in everything else that we do, we try to follow the New Testament pattern because the New Testament pattern is what works. And, and is it enough to say, well, we do it that way because that's what the Bible says and read some verses? I think it is. But sometimes it's nice to go deeper than that so that you can get a fuller understanding. My target audience generally is not the 50-year-old plus crowd or maybe even the 30-year-old plus crowd. It's, it's a younger crowd. As they go to college, as they meet boys and girls that aren't in the church, they tend to be influenced by this type of thing and think it's not that big a deal that people worship differently. And an ounce of prevention goes a long ways towards being able to deal with that when the time comes. And so that's my goal. I don't see any problems coming up. And uh, for those of us that are parents, seeing no problems is a good thing. And Warding those off in the future is what we want to try and do. So when we say follow the New Testament pattern, again, it's not a decision made off the cuff. Although in many ways, some of the things that we do are tradition. We found that out in lots of ways when COVID hit and we changed up a lot of stuff. And even months or years later, it's easy to fall back into the same routines that was the order of the service. Or, well, I just don't like it when we don't have five songs instead of four, or name the thing that, that was hard for you to get used to. But we don't do what we do in bulk because of tradition either. 
it's a big deal in a lot of our religious neighbors that we don't do things as directed by the Old Testament as well. We think, oh, everybody knows that, and there's not many Jews around here, but there is a large contingent of people that worship in some form or fashion and bring in Jewish traditions into much of their worship. And so there's a reason why we don't do that. God has a perfect plan. He has a perfect plan for a lot of different things. Coulter talked about some of that this morning. But he has a perfect plan for the way that we worship and the way that the body is edified and built up as well. And all of us have a part in that. And really it's more about doing things according to God's plan than it is about saying how bad everything else is. Why do we follow the New Testament pattern? And we're going to gloss over a lot of things. We're going to read one or two scriptures. We're going to get a highlight and an overview of why we do these things. Colossians 2.12 gives us that in a nutshell. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who's raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. As members of God's church, we know that we were saved through baptism. But in doing that, we also realize that God, Christ in His sacrifice, wiped away the ordinances of the Old Testament, the old law that was against us. As we worship, and as I call it that, there really are two main purposes. And I think we all know this, but it's good to think about the purpose of, of why we assemble together so that we can think about what God's design was and why it might be that way. So one is worship. Another purpose that we get out of the Bible for assembling us all together is so that we can be edified. Some different ways of thinking about it. We'll go over some, uh, some definitions of what edify means. It's a very broad term. Worship means to literally or figuratively prostrate, bow ourselves down in homage or to express adoration respect, honor, all of the things that you can think about why God is worthy to be praised, why God is so great. And we need to express that on a regular basis. That's what worship is. And one of the reasons why we gather together, even though we can worship, as we've had sermons over the last several weeks and months, that all of our life, in a sense, is worship towards God, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we live, Corporate worship, worship as a body, is important as well. We can join in together to pay our respect and our honor and our praise and our adoration towards God who saved us, who sent His Son, who is wonderful and has done all the great things that we, we can't even enumerate them all tonight. John says this in John 4, But the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so it's a balance. It's a two-sided two coin, however you want to think about it. Worship can't be all of one thing and none of another. It can't be all spirit, all emotionally based, all based on 
nothing concrete, but it needs to be partly that. We need to have our emotions stirred. We need to feel the twinge in our heart when we think about the resurrection, or the, the crucifixion, as, as Coulter talked about this morning. To feel the great hope when we think about the resurrection that it gives to us. But we can't throw out all the practices, all the teachings that the Bible has, saying that it's the Spirit that's moving us. So we, on the other hand, can't throw out all the emotion. You know, a lot of us aren't very emotional people, and it's very easy for us to say, Oh, let me just know what the truth is, and I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to get too worked up or stirred up. And we have to be careful going to that, that extreme as well. We can be as right as the day is long as far as the way that we do things and not be right with God. Just as much as the person that's way over here on this side that is 100% doing things emotionally and of the Spirit can be right as far as the day is long in doing that and still not be right with God. It takes both. And I encourage you, if you're a lot one way or a lot the other way, to consider that and realize that God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't say 90% this and 10% that or 10% this and 90% that. He says both need to be included. It needs to be part of the way that we worship God. What does it mean to edify? Probably the only place we use the word edify is in a sermon, right? That's not in our modern day English. But it's a, nearly an all-encompassing term. Edifice, which is not a word that we use a lot, but that's an a, uh, architectural word talking about a building that gets built. Education is another word that uses some of the same root words. Really, edifying means build up, and it means build up in... A wide variety of ways so some of the things that we do to build each other up we have sermons we have different people speak that tie the Bible together for us that try to give us different ideas to think about study that's one way that we edify corporately we sing songs together that may encourage us encouragement is another way that people are built up it's not just knowledge that gets built up it can be our attitude Sometimes we see people that go through extreme difficulty, but they come through it with their faith intact, and we're inspired by them. That's another way that we can be built up by being together. There are a lot of ways that being edified that we can be built up. And so it's about growth. It's about learning. It's about encouraging. It's about any number of things, a wide variety. Ultimately... In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 12, for 14, verse 12, Paul, as he's summarizing the purpose of assembling together, as most of this chapter is about, people were asking about this, and he's given instructions about that, and all these different pieces of worship and different things that people could do. Here's kind of one of the, the points that he made there. Even so, ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, all these folks wanted the miraculous ability to do things that the apostles could do. And I remember as a kid, you'd go see a magician, and you thought they were magic. You wouldn't know how to do their tricks because it was 
awesome. People respected them. People thought they were really good. You could see a lot of people benefiting from it. So I could imagine when it wasn't just tricks, but it was really people being healed, that Christians thought that would be a great thing to be able to do. And not even giving them bad motives, that would be something that you would think you'd want uh, because so much good could be done with it. But he said, even above that, even above spiritual gifts that could be miraculously given to you that you could do what you think are great things, he said, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Wasn't just teaching, it wasn't just what we do in the public assembly, but here particularly he was talking about the public assembly, that whatever we do together, maybe it's visiting after church. Can't do that at home by yourself. Can't do that over Zoom. Whatever it is that we do, we need to do it with that purpose in mind. You know, when we go sing at, at Westridge, the purpose, the total purpose, is not to go entertain the folks over there. They enjoy it. Sometimes they clap even. They like it. It, it makes them feel really good. But one of the purposes we go is because it edifies those of us that are members of the body when we go there. Because guess what? The little three and four-year-olds that are there, guess what they're being built up to do? I remember when I was four or five going, it was the nursing home over on Amarillo Street. I can't remember the name of it now. I remember going there. I was being built up and didn't even know it. You know, I wasn't singing worth a hoot when I was five years old but I was being built up. And so as we think about building up the church, it's 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 very big job. It's all-encompassing. And we want to make sure that our assemblies are edifying as well in all these different ways. Edifying. We're set up as autonomous congregations. Autonomous means that the leadership here tries to take care of the body of Christ that meets here. Not that we don't care about, but we're not in charge of the folks in Lubbock. Might we talk to them and collaborate with them at times? Sure. But we're not in charge of them. And neither are the people in Lubbock in charge of the people here. We don't sit down together and try to make a policy that fits everybody up and down I-27. Because of this particular verse, Titus 1 verse 5, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order things that are at wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Local congregation needs local leadership because things are different. People in Lubbock don't know people here. And here's why I talk about it in the context of, of worship. You may go to another church, or you may meet somebody from another church, and in most of the churches, most of the denominations in town, there's a hierarchy. They're set in order. There's some, some amount of congregational leadership in most most denominations but their rules their bylaws what they're going to do in their marching orders come from somebody in Lubbock or somebody in Denver or somebody higher up the chain maybe in Waco there's all sorts of ways that denominations are ordered that don't follow this pattern and guess what just like Lubbock doesn't know what we need or we don't know what Amarillo needs or take your pick, it makes it very difficult for those congregations 
those denominations to function like a New Testament church because they're organized a different way. Doesn't seem like a big deal, maybe when you sit down with your boyfriend at a service or go to some kind of con, you know, whatever you might be there for. But in the end, that's kind of what that all boils down to. And that's some of the, the, the hidden behind the scenes that thinking about that now is a lot better than thinking about it the first time that you, you go to one of those churches that you're ever exposed to it. In Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus that are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Churches had elders or bishops and deacons. Those that led and oversaw and those that served and tended to. And he gave specific requirements and specific attributes, characteristics, qualifications. There's a lot of things you could say about these traits. But he describes a certain type of person. And that's for good reason. Uh, because the office of elder, and we'll read some about the office of deacon, their jobs, their activities, if you want to call them that, that, desire certain, that need certain skills to be able to do them. And so it says, this is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. They're works. They're not a board of directors. They're not... Uh, a meeting of cardinals. There's all sorts of ways that denominations organize themselves to conduct the business of the church, but the business of the church is not strictly numbers and balancing checkbooks and all the day-to-day -day stuff that most of those boards of directors devolve into. It's spiritual things, and you'll see these are a list of spiritual traits. A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, Sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. Not a brawler, not covetous. One that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, or in addition to these, he must have a good report of those that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You know, I think in our, in our past, maybe we've kind of read these and made sure it was a perfect person that became an elder. And I think that's become, maybe in some of the smaller congregations that don't have a history of leadership, that's become a setback to them that the standard in their mind was so high that there was no way anybody could fulfill that role. And it's not perfect, people. And there's reasons why God had multiple elders, because elders got to keep each other straight sometimes. We're no different than anybody else in lots of ways. We're people. We've got our own biases and our own tempers and our own things that we struggle with. But at the same time, they're traits that people can see and people can hold and respect. Because what does the book of Hebrews say? Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. As they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So the list of traits, to me, goes hand in hand with the idea that how am I going to submit myself 
to someone who all they do is lie all the time? Or how do I submit myself and have respect for and follow their advice if it's someone who has kids that are drunks and in all sorts of trouble? Or name all, or look back at all those traits and that gives me confidence that someone who's exhibited those is someone who over a period of time has done those sort of things. And why do I put it in with our worship and the way we order things? Because lots of congregations, a lot of dominations, they don't select leaders this way. They pick someone who, hey, they own their own business and they're very financially successful. They must know how to run a business, so let me pick them. Or, hey, you've served your five years, so it's time for you to roll off the board and let's roll somebody else on the board. And it becomes, well, let's share the wealth around. And, and none of those are biblical patterns. The biblical pattern is to pick men that we can submit to, that, that meet the criteria, that meet the, the traits in the Bible. Not perfect people, but people that we can respect. People that have shown a, a track record of respectful traits. Deacons are much the same way. It's not a rotating... Not to say that someone's chosen to be a deacon and has to be a big deacon for life, but, or an elder for life as far as that goes, but it's not something that's haphazard or something that is, well, it's my turn now, you've had your turn. A deacon comes from the word diakonos, which literally means to run on errands. Sometimes I think Charles must feel like he runs on lots of errands, and Brian, and, and name all the, the deacons. They run on all sorts of errands because there are a lot of things that have to happen behind the scenes. A lot of y'all do them that aren't deacons, but a lot of things happen behind the scenes, and these are recognized men that meet the specified traits so that we can have respect for them. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued or given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Could you imagine, I think we've all seen the treasurer's report, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $450,000 a year runs through this place. Could you imagine someone that was greedy and a crook being a deacon and being in charge of that? You know, when the church was set up, that's the things we were guarding against. We don't need people that are not above reproach, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And it talks about deacons' wives, and I think elders' wives as well. Their wives must be grave, not slanderers, not gossipers, not talking bad about people, but sober, faithful in all things. Faithful, I think, in a broader sense. Not just faithfulness to God, but faithful in, they know how to keep their mouth closed. It's not a, it's not a place that's a, that's a place for a spouse that, that can't keep, keep things to themselves. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. No, we're blessed to have a legacy. Not, I, won't, I won't call it a history because you can go back and, and mark time and there's a lot of places that have, they can show that they've had elders and deacons in place for any number of years. We're fortunate just in having had them there. 
But really, we have a legacy of men and their spouses that have tried to fulfill these characteristics, that have tried to fulfill the roles since 19, the mid-1950s when this congregation was created out of a congregation on the east side of town. That prior to that, they had elders and deacons for many, many years. People that hold these things serious. And, and it, I, I think it has everything to do with the success we see in many, many ways that the congregation enjoys. And so as we think about those things, does that, if a, if a church doesn't have elders and deacons, does that blow it all out of the water if they don't select them? No, but when you think about the longevity and people organize things all over the board different from what the Bible says, it's wrong. But you can see the outcome of that down the road and that the chain gets broken. And the success and the pattern that we follow when it's broken becomes very difficult to put back together. As we proceed on to the worship, as we talk, think about worshiping and edifying each other through song, we know we sing with voices only. That's way different than most places. Ephesians 5.19 says this, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. As we think about worship, think about the songs that we sing, the songs that we do sing. We learn from them. We're built up emotionally. We're built up maybe in knowledge. Maybe it helps us think about and apply the Word of God different because most of them are based on a Bible verse or a Bible concept. We're built up in lots of ways, but we also worship God as the great God that He is. How great is our God? As I think about songs that we sing. Our singing is not about entertainment. And I think we'd all agree to that. We've all at one point in our life said, man, I can't believe. Have you seen the sound system and the guitars and the lights that they built at that church over there? And it just becomes a concert? And, and it has in many ways. It's become choirs. And that's why I always laugh when I say I'm going to preach to the choir. Because we know that a choir is the first step or maybe the next step towards it becoming just about entertainment. I don't have to participate because I'm not any good at it. And they're a whole lot better and they're going to practice and I can sit back and listen to them. And maybe it didn't start out as entertainment, but it becomes that. And so what I encourage each of us to think about, in many ways, if we're not careful, without a choir, we can turn it into entertainment. Because sometimes it's easy to sit back and say, you know, I don't sing very well. I'm just going to sit back and listen to all this beautiful singing. And can you learn from that? Well, yeah, maybe you can learn some. But can you worship God like He says if... I'm not doing it myself. You really can. It doesn't talk about the, the notes that we sing. It doesn't say that we've got to be screaming at the top of our lungs. Some people can sing really loud and some people sing really soft. But what it says we've got to do is we, each and every individual, has to worship God with our voice. And it's easy to sit back and say, well, I'm good. I don't do it like they do. But be careful that we don't 
by not participating, by not following the pattern ourselves, that we don't fall prey to the same, same temptation. Seemed like a good idea one time to put people up on a choir that sounded really good. <laughs> because they could sing good. But that's not what God wants. He wants us all to join in, in worship to Him, and in building each other up. You know, I won't say I was a huge, I didn't live here when the decision was made that the unbaptized little boys could come up with their father and lead singing during the singing night practice. Didn't know what I thought about it. I guess when you get to be a grandpa, you think about it a lot different than when you're 21 and don't have kids. But how inspiring and building up is it to us to watch a three or four year old little boy learning to lead a song and singing at the top of their lungs. They don't know what they're singing, but at the same time, they're being instructed and taught, and all of us can be built up in that way. That we can have faith that the future of the church is being put in order. That one day we're not going to turn around. I mean, that's probably as an elder, my biggest fear would be one day I'm going to turn around and there's not a speaker one. There's not a song leader one. And probably likelihood in my lifetime that's not going to happen. But I don't even want to be part of the decline in any of that. Because a lot of us have been places, go to places now, worship at places in the past or currently, where they didn't just turn around, but from the time that the people that are 70 now and the time they were 40, that's exactly what's happened. Because all these things weren't put in place and we didn't teach the youngsters and we didn't take into account the way that God wants us to conduct our worship and to order things and the chain has been broken. It's very difficult to put back in place. So don't just say, hey, we're singing without music, I'm good. Examine yourself. Are you singing? Are you worshiping God? Are you being built up and are you building up others in the way that we sing? What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. To me, that sounds a lot like John 4, when we worship in spirit and in truth. We sing with spirit and understanding. Both of those things have to be true. And, and what's, what you'll notice, I haven't said one word about you need to be a song leader or you need to be able to carry a good tune. The Bible doesn't really talk about that. Not one bit. Now, do we need people sometimes? Yeah, that's true. And is there any wrong, anything wrong with going to singing school and learning how to sing better? There's not. We always want to excel, and we'll talk about trying to excel in some other areas as well. But the danger in spending a lot of effort on that side of it is we can turn it into entertainment if we're not careful. We've got to be careful that it doesn't become all about the notes and all about being a great song leader. And we miss the point, which is it's worship to God and it's edification for the body. So we sing with our voices only. We have a simple collective prayer. Luke 18, verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, rather justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Prayers are offered from the heart. They're simple. They're not repetitive. You know, and I find myself in the very same thing. Does it mean we can't use the, some of the same words over and over? I don't think necessarily. But, but every single one of us has somebody in our mind that the first seven phrases of their prayer, we can almost repeat it when we know that they're going to lead the prayer. And some of us have some of those same things that we say. And that doesn't, I don't know that it necessarily takes away from it being from the heart, but we have to be careful. And as we pray and lead prayers and even our prayers at home, that we make sure we have the spirit of humility, like I think was described in this parable. That we realize that we are unjust before God and that we need His help and that everything we have comes from Him and we need to thank Him for that. That He cares for us and we need to ask Him for the things that are on our hearts and He wants to ease our burden and He needs to hear our burdens. Many times, if you go to a denomination, you'll hear, and, and a lot of times you've been to a funeral or to a wedding and there's a book of liturgy is one of the things that they call it. They'll open it up, they'll go to the back, and there will be a prayer that they read, word for word, that's been read at every other wedding or every other funeral that's been conducted in the last 50 years. Not from the heart. Very rehearsed, very repetitious. And not to try to put them down, but the reason we don't do that is so that we can show our heart to God, that we can bear our hearts to God, and we can communicate with God in the ways that we've talked about. We always pray in Jesus' name. John 16, verse 23, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, ask and you receive that your joy may be full. And I don't know that he's specifically talking about prayer right here, but we know there's many examples of praying in Jesus' name. And, and why do we do that? You go sometimes in, in civic organizations or maybe in other public meetings, you'll hear people pray and they don't pray in Jesus' name, and it sounds odd. But why do we do that? Is it some magic words like abracadabra? Sometimes we think that, well, if we don't say a prayer... But is that, is that why, just because we need to repeat the same old words? It's really not. Really, it's kind of encapsulated in this scripture that really we have no standing before God. God, Jesus is our mediator. He's the one that presents us to God. He's the one that intercedes on our behalf. And what we're saying when we pray in Jesus' name is that we're coming in the name of Jesus by His authority because He's our, intermedi His, He's our intermediary. He's the one that, that helps us before God. So it's not just words that we say, things that we repeat. It's in Jesus' name because that's how He asks us to do it. Most of us know, but if you, we're one of the very few places, even in churches of Christ, 
that don't have a single person that does the majority of the teaching. Why do we have multiple teachers? 1 Corinthians 12, God talks about, or Paul talks about several different things that have been put in place to build up the church. He set some in the church, first apostles, secondary prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healings, and he goes down the list. But one of the things he puts into the church is teachers. Teaching is kind of the core of everything that we do, isn't it? How are we going to build, be built up if we don't have good teaching? How are we going to know what God wants us to do if we don't have teaching? We understand that, that a little baby is born and really doesn't know much except to cry. <laughs> Maybe some don't cry, but they know to eat and they know to cry. And... Maybe that's an oversimplification, but that's really where we start as Christians. And we have to be taught at every level. In, in this room, there are people that are figuratively babies. You know, we had a brand new sister that was at church, at a church like this, for the very first time this morning. That's about as baby as it gets. We've got people here that have been at countless thousands of services. I don't know, I don't know if Dee's got the most, but I bet if you started counting in the thousands, that might be too low. We've got every range of experience and knowledge, but ultimately we all need to be taught. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Not everybody is going to be a public teacher. We're not going to go into all the details of that. It says few should be public teachers. We hold that in high esteem, maybe too high sometimes. But we all need to be teachers because we have children to teach. We have neighbors to teach. We have countless opportunities to teach. And we all need to be teachers. We teach in the assembly according to Acts 14. When they were come together, they gathered the church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, one of the primary responsibilities of elders is to teach, and that's what we try to model here. You hear, you hear a lot of elders teaching because we think that's important. And we know it primarily falls to them, but it's very clear that there were more teachers than just the elders in the early church. And so you see a wide variety of teaching experience, types of teaching, People that teach, some on Sunday morning, some on Sunday nights, some on Wednesday nights. You see younger teachers reading chapters to get experience, to get confidence. It's important to grow and develop. It's important to encourage young teachers and new Christians that want to become teachers. I encourage you, don't get, don't get disheartened when you don't get to stand in the pulpit as often as you think you ought to. That's the danger of a large congregation, or one of the challenges, I guess I should say, is there's X number of speaking slots, and when there's a lot of people, slots don't come around very often. That doesn't mean you're not important, but remember the purpose of teaching is edification. Remember, there's a lot of opportunities around. We were talking the other day, and I remember going to Flomont, and I remember going to Sandy Soil, and Hugo, Oklahoma, and Ardmore, Oklahoma, and doing rounds. And sometimes people have ideas that, hey, we're just keeping a dead place alive. And I've had that same thought myself. But on the other side, those of us that 
at that time didn't get very many opportunities to speak and wanted to hone our skills and wanted to be able to do more of that, there's a nice balance of speaking at some of the smaller congregations. I know some of you go to Lockney, some of you go to Olton. There's a, there's a vast number of opportunities to do that that aren't necessarily at this location. And if that's something that really, really uh, excites you, I encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities. And remember the purpose of teaching, it's edification. It's easy, and, and again, the fine line between excellence and competition, we've always got to keep that in mind. We've got excellent teaching here. Better than at any time I remember it here in my life, and as good or better than anywhere I've ever attended church on a regular basis. We get fed with high-quality teaching every single sermon. That being said, every now and then when you have a system like ours, you get a dog of a lesson, right? <laughs> But it's easy in our environment that the level gets to be inch and inch and like this, and that becomes the focus. So don't let that become your focus. Remember, it's to edify and to build up. Even the simplest thing can be the most important thing. As he said, five words with understanding can be better than, than 10,000 words that people don't understand. We do it in a group. Not going to belabor the point. We don't see Bible classes or other types of divided teaching in the New Testament. We know historically that started in, in around 1781 in, in England to educate child laborers. We observe the Lord's Supper every week. Not once a quarter so it stays special, not once a year on a particular holiday. We do it as Acts 20 and 7 said, upon the first day of the week we meet together it's representative of Christ's body and blood. You go certain places and they'll say it literally is Christ's body and blood. Jesus tells us to eat it and drink it and remember. That's how we can worship Him. That's how we can be built up. We remember. We commune. Sometimes you hear it called the communion. That's participation together. It's an intimate sharing of our core beliefs. What's more central to our faith than the death of Jesus Christ, as we talked about this morning? That's why we do that. That's why it's so important that we be together while we do it in corporate worship. It's the communion of the body of Christ. It's the communion of the, of the blood of Christ. We take a weekly offering, not just to beg for people's money, but to Fulfill the command in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let each of you lay by in stores. God's prospered him so that there's no gatherings when I come, that there's not some scrambling around trying to get money together when the need arises that it's there and available. It's not a tithe. You're not sent a bill, as you would be in many denominations, that says, hey, you need to be paying this much. Or you agreed, and you're not holding up your end of the bargain. Fork it over. Tithing is an Old Testament ordinance, as we read about, being done away with. It's private. Very few people need to know about it or do know about it. It's a free will, not a biblical term, but we decide what we want to give. And maybe, if you think about it, it's more demanding than a tithe because we're commanded to give out of our generosity. If we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. We need to purpose in our heart. In some other scriptures, it talks about giving with liberality. We've heard that said a lot. We all need to be liberals. 
And everybody cringes when they hear that. But what the Bible tells us is we need to be liberal with the way that we give. We need to have other people's needs first in our mind. And a perspective. There's some retirees here that live on as little as $1,200 a month. That may have gone up a little bit with some cost of living. Maybe $20,000 a year, which is barely uh, over minimum wage. Just a handful of money may be a lot. Some of us are... I guess I'm probably past middle age now. I don't know where, middle, where the middle is. But we're in a position where we're earning a lot of money. And we may, without a heartbeat, spend $50 on a meal or $75 for a, a concert ticket or $1,500 for a weekend trip. And $5 is paltry. <laughs> or we may be given $20 that we gave 20 years ago. And $20 now is not the same as it was 20 years ago. So we all need to consider that personally. It's not, a, it's not somebody's going to beat you over the head, but God judges us on generosity, not on what we can tithe or people can beat out of us. Women don't take public roles, as we could read in 1 Corinthians 14. Women keep silence, and it's not because we don't like women. I like women, especially like my wife. But there are a lot of great women here that do a lot of great things. And so the idea that they don't participate publicly, that we hold them in, in less esteem, is not about that. It's because there's a different role for women that God's described. Was Paul prejudiced? He wasn't. He said, I'm not doing this just for the Corinthians. I'm doing it for all the churches. And if somebody wants to be ignorant or somebody wants to ignore what I'm saying, we need to ignore them because it's the Word of God. It's the commandments of the Lord is what he says in verse 37. So as we think about worship, as you think about going other places to worship, as you think about the influence that has on you, if you're younger or older, as you worship here, think about some of these things. Hopefully they'll encourage you to, to make your worship to God better. Because God organized his church for at least two purposes, to worship him, to give him the respect and the honor and the praise that he's owed. And it's to build and edify individuals and families in all sorts of ways. When we do it according to God's plan, that happens. When we don't do it according to God's plan, things start breaking apart. And we don't want that to happen. We want to keep God's plan intact. We want to keep doing it like the Bible says so that we can be pleasing to Him and so we can keep what we think is a good thing going and be complete. God's plan is complete, and we want to honor that. That's all I prepared to speak on this, morning, this evening. I hope you found it interesting. If you've got questions, I always encourage those. Uh, I've now, I can think of two times I've ever been upset. had nothing to do with church. I won't ever be upset with you for asking questions that are legitimate questions. Uh, discussions are always good. So I encourage you, if you've got questions about any of these types of things, please ask. Um, don't wait until you've got a girlfriend or boyfriend and you're trying to figure out why not to go to church at a different place uh, because then that's kind of the, the, the back end of when you really need to be deciding that sort of thing. If there's some way the church can assist you tonight through baptism or if you need prayer, please come while we stand and sing.